All right, so we're visiting Jeremiah, so be there in your Bibles. We need to be in chapter 19. Our visit to chapters 19, 20, 22, 23 tonight is brought to you by the Department of Budget Cuts. So the time we have allotted for all of this has uh, evidently shrunk just a little bit. And just so you know, with the reading lists that I provided, I didn't really actually expect to stay current with that, especially through the first part of Jeremiah. Um, but that would certainly keep us on track to be seeing it in the text before we come here and discuss it. So hopefully, your reading of it has been uh, very helpful for you and profitable for you. And uh, if so, it'd be helpful for all of us if you'd share whatever that is. So. Um, I see David back there, and I'm going to make sure he has a, a mic ready for uh, whatever you might have to say that we maybe just omitted for sake of time or, or didn't, didn't realize, because there will be some of those things as well. So you can help me through this. And we're coming back to chapter 19, because we didn't get away from entirely from this idea of the potter and the clay, the potter who makes vessels, and who... Uh, has control over his creations. And in chapter 19, you'll recall that Jeremiah was told to take a jar, and we've arrived in verse 10 where he's told to break the jar. It's a perfectly new uh, jar that he had just purchased, and so he's, this is not the first time where God has sent him to go on a shopping trip <laughs> And then immediately, whatever he uh, had at hand was going to be ruined for the purpose of teaching a lesson. And so, we need to learn the lesson of the, the broken jar here. So, we, we took a detour from that as Jeremiah collected the people that he needed to speak to and that needed to see this demonstration. We don't use visual aids nearly often enough. And um, I, I nearly did bring uh, a nice vessel, and I decided against it, but um, I, didn't, I didn't want to threaten to, uh, to break anything that was worthwhile. But that, uh, that raises a question with this perfectly brand new jar that Jeremiah is told to buy and then take with him out the gate, the potsherd gate, where you go out where all of the refuse is being thrown out, where the broken pots are thrown out. This is not what you do with a, a new jar. It's a demonstration. In verse 10, here's the instruction that we've been building up to. He has this vessel, and God tells Jeremiah, then you are to break the jar in the sight of the men who accompany you, and you're going to have something to say in connection with that demonstration. And when you think about something that's perfect, you know, would seem brand new, and on the outside seems perfectly good, you think, what a waste. It, we're just going to, th we're throwing it away the first day and smashing it like that. But the fact of the matter is, if this, if this in some way is worthless, why not? And I think I said last week, if, you know, it's probably fairly satisfying to break something that's that's, uh, that's worthless. Come to verse 11. Here are the words. Here's the lesson. Why are we breaking this? You shall say to them, this is what the Lord says. Thus says the Lord, just so 
Shall I break this people and this city, even as one breaks a potter's vessel, which, he notes, cannot again be repaired? And then he goes on to say, uh, talk about de- that he will defile these, these places where they practice great wickedness, okay? This, God intends to break them and break the city. That's, that's the idea there. This jar, it, it, he, he adds very helpfully for us, it's something that cannot be repaired. And this is essentially the uh, same diagnosis we read, we read at the end of Second Chronicles. There's no remedy for this. There's no remedy for these people. It can't be fixed. It can only be discarded, right? Leanna and I had a moment, it was going to be last week but when we were going to talk about this, so now it's actually a week and a half ago or so. Uh, we had a, a bad handoff, and I was handing off a plate to, to Leanna, and uh, there was a bad handoff, and that distinctive sound <laughs> that happens when, when things get broken, and then uh, the, the cleanup that you, that's what you could expect. But I can tell you with absolute certainty... That plate went about 20 different directions, and in about 200 different pieces, it couldn't be repaired. It's the same, same thing here. We did a pretty thorough job, and I think that's the idea that God's portraying here. What happens? You raise something up like this and smash it down. It's, it's done for. I think you can see what God is trying to communicate here. By the way, this idea of something that cannot be repaired, I do believe, and maybe you will have some input on this now or later, that this indicates a broader truth about God's covenants and this nation, that the physical nation of Israel couldn't actually fulfill the ideal that God had in mind for having a special people for himself, that there were, there were going to be some shortcomings, and this ideal could only be accomplished by remaking. You remember the chapter 18? If it's spoiled and it's done, he's going to have to start over and remake it. And I think this, is an, this idea is pointing us to a new covenant, which um, he, Jeremiah will say will not be like the old covenant, not be like the one they broke. We're breaking things, evidently. And so this will be one more teaser setting us up to appreciate what we read when we get to chapter 31. But that's all we'll say on that for right now, unless you want to say something about that, and you have at most 15 seconds, so go. <laughs> no, we... Okay. Well, that, that hopefully conveys the ideas from those, the, the potter and the pottery in chapters 18 and 19. Let's come on to chapter 20. And what we find is more evidence that Jeremiah's message is not being well received. And in this case, it's going to be because Pasher, the priest, so this is a chief uh, leader and a chief officer of the house of the Lord, he doesn't fear God, and so he's not going to be afraid to abuse his prophet. We'll go through this uh, quickly. Um, Pasher didn't exercise, Pasher's name is going to become a play on words. And so I'll give you another one. He didn't exercise caution and a fear of the Lord that should have, uh, should have caused him to exercise caution. And so he became a cautionary tale for anyone who rejects God's messenger. Okay? 
Pasher, in verse 2, this is chapter 20, had Jeremiah the prophet beaten and put him in the stocks that were at the upper uh, Benjamin gate. Uh, the next day he did release him, and uh, that was, would seem to be the end of that for now. Maybe if you intimidate the prophet enough, he won't have anything more to say, and at least we've shut him up. But, well, that didn't do anything to address what Jeremiah actually was saying. It just, um, you know, these, these intimidation methods, we know how godless people act. They acted that way in the days of Jesus. They acted that way in the days of Jesus' apostles and all of the others. And uh, I think we'll see, uh, in fact, a little bit, a little bit more about this uh, later on this evening, Lord willing. But he's given a new name. He's acted like a terrorist to Jeremiah, and his new name is given as terror. Well, in, uh, I guess this is probably Hebrew as far as I know. Pasher, Jeremiah says to him, this is what the Lord has said. Pasher is not the name God has called you. you everybody's calling, that's, that's what everybody else calls you. But God has called you Magor Misabib. And the idea there is in verse 4. Behold, I'm going to make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends. And while your eyes look on, they will fall by the sword of their enemies. And so all of these people you promise peace to are going to see nothing but terror. This is, this is no, no peace for any of these, any of these ones. God will return, as he said in other places, return your evil on your own heads. And this is really a very... Uh, fitting, and so the man whose name is Terror is going to meet a terrifying end. Now, Jeremiah has come to uh, a time in his life that he's, he's really going to struggle with all of this rejection he's receiving. And I'm calling this Jeremiah's time of trouble, and he's going to be crying out to God because he's wrestling with this difficult reality that speaking for God means being ridiculed, means being opposed, means being persecuted. And I just, I don't know how much we can expect to go through this, but that's what we see in verses 7 and 8 and on. Oh, Lord, you've, you've deceived me, and I was deceived. I've become a laughingstock all day long. He's being mocked, and, and this, is, this is very heavy for him. Um. I'm, I'm speaking your words, he says in verses 8, but the result of that is there, it's turned into a reproach, and I'm being derided. I'm being mocked again in all of these. It speaks to, it, it reminds of all of the passages in the New Testament, and every time somebody is going to be speaking truth, speaking for God, it's what, it's what they can always expect, reproach. You can expect to be reviled, as 1 Peter 4 will say. And he's going to be opposed. They will say, denounce him. Yes, denounce him. And even Jeremiah is saying, even like the people I thought I could trust um, are now turning and abandoning me. And Titus 1 verse 9 says they're going to contradict what's true and right. They're going to contradict you just like they contradicted Jeremiah. And you'll be persecuted. And Jesus would tell his disciples, beware. Um, they're going to hand you over to the courts, to the synagogues, and you're going to expect beatings like Jeremiah did. But do not fear them. Fear God. Don't fear them. They can hurt you. They can't harm you. 
Fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. And so even though this evil treatment will feel bitter, Jeremiah determines, he absolutely chooses to trust in God in all of this. He trusts in God to defend his cause in verses 11 and 12. But the Lord is with me like a dread champion. What does he have to fear um, uh, from persecutors in that case? And the same with us, Romans 8. He trusts in God to deliver him in verse 13. Sing, sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, for he has delivered the soul of the needy one from the hand of the evildoers. And he trusts God since we like alliteration and we do that as much as possible to help our minds grab hold of ideas to also to do what is right. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Yes, he will. And in 1 Peter 4 verse 19, um, let those who uh, suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful uh, creator, I think it says, or judge, in doing what is right. Excuse me for quoting off the top of my head. <clears throat> Psalm 9, verses 9 and 10. This will be the last thing we say about chapter 20, and then you can have your comments. Psalm 9. The Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in the time of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. We can take a great deal of encouragement from the faith and the trust of Jeremiah in trusting the Lord even when uh, he was suffering wrong um, as the wages of saying what was right. Okay, what do you want to say about uh, chapter 20? Anything there? Well, we go on then, and uh, gladly so. so we, we, we're leaving now the reign of Josiah. We need to, so what you see is toward the end of this uh, timeline, we're coming forward now in the timeline, some, tw uh, you know, 20 years from the start of Jeremiah's uh, call it a ministry, when he was teaching and, and addressing the people in the days of Josiah. But now we've come forward to the, uh, the time of the, in the days of Jehoiakim. Here in what you'll see as a red segment, as long as you're not colorblind, they're right close to the end. I mean, we really are approaching the very end of this nation. And um, what we'll see is the words of Jeremiah to the king and to the people at this time. And you wonder, okay, so he's been at this for 20 years. David, I don't have Leland here. David, so you've been teaching for, your, your life is devoted to teaching God's people and preaching to outsiders. How long has that been, roughly speaking? Yeah, roughly. Okay, so four decades, almost 40 years. Yeah. You're saying the same things, having to address the same things that... You're smiling. <laughs> you wonder if things have improved at all. Have we made any progress? 20 years. And these 20 years, don't forget, all of Jeremiah's efforts in those 20 years, all of Josiah's efforts as, as king of the land, the ruler of the land, can they make progress with the people um, or not? And, and will their message be anything similar to what it was at first? Or have we moved beyond that at all? Have we gone on to maturity and we've gotten away from just repentance from dead works? Well, well, I don't think that's what we'll find. And I think you probably suspected that. And you probably read that. It's the same message as it was at the beginning. So in chapters 22 and 23, the, the topics here are going to be 
kings especially, and justice and righteousness, that pair of traits that is all wrapped up in who God is and what he desires and what he's looking for in people who will lead his people and in, and in all the rest as well. Now, you may recall in chapter 4, there was this call for the people to return. What did that return look like? He said, if you will return to me, good. And that means you will need to do justice and righteousness. That's uh, chapter 4, verse 2. And in chapter 9, I really need to read this because this is uh, extremely, entirely relevant. This is what the Lord is all about. Justice and righteousness is what the Lord is all about. And it's what he delights in. And take note of this fact that he will say, Thus says the Lord in verse 23, uh, 923, Let not a wise man boast in his wisdom. Not the mighty man in his might, not the rich man in his riches. Don't lose track of that. We're coming back to that. But let him who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows me. Okay, don't lose track of that statement either. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness and justice and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things. Okay? He delights in these things. And what it means to really know him is to walk in these ways. And, um, and in Jeremiah 22, as we come back here, he's sent to Jehoiakim to say the very same thing. And evidently, this, uh, this is not the way he's walking. Uh, very obviously, I should say. All right, so in 22 verse 2, he, t he goes directly to the, to the, um, to the king and says, this is what God says. You listen, or you should, when God is speaking. Thus says the Lord, verse 3, do justice and righteousness, and deliver the one who's been robbed from the power of his oppressor. Do not mistreat, don't oppress, don't shed innocent blood. And verse 4, if you will do these things, he says, I will establish your throne, I will establish a line of kings. He's going to bless them. And this is actually a promise of God's favor, not only for him, but for the whole nation. It's, it's in the interest of all your people to be what God wants you to be in justice and righteousness. And verse 5 will say, but if you will not, and you already know what the consequences of that will be, so I won't even say, um, you know what will surely happen. More about that at the end of this chapter, verse 30, okay? So this is his message to the king. Now, before we uh, examine this further, uh, in just a few uh, verses down, what we see in verse 9 is a very interesting, 8 and 9, is a very interesting phenomenon. Here's what I mean. Now, we know that the behavior and in the words of good people, godly people, can help show others and show outsiders God, show others who God is and what he's about and cause others to come to know God by who we are and what we do and what we say. And, um, okay, so related thought, one of the purposes of the temple was to uh, make God's great name known in all of the earth, th throughout, throughout really all the earth. You'll remember in the days of Solomon, everyone was hearing about the fame of Solomon 
in relation to the name of the Lord, it says, and the temple that Solomon had built for him. This temple is calling attention and making God's name great and making him known. You are God's temple, right? So in the new covenant, the picture is that God's people are going to make God's name great and make it known in all the earth. Okay, we know that that dynamic. We understand that. But the curious thing that happens in verses 8 and 9, it, it, flips, it, on, it flips it on its head. We make uh, God, we are hopefully are making people know about God because we are like him. We act like him. We, we think like him and we talk like him. But that's not what's happening here. And so in verses 8 and 9, when everything comes to pass and all of this destruction that God has talked about, all of the nations of the earth are going to be saying, what happened here? My goodness, what happened here? Um, why has the Lord done this to the great city? And then they're going to be telling each other, well, it's because they abandoned God for other gods, and then he abandoned them. It flips it on its head. It's not because of Israel's faithfulness and because their godliness. It's because of their unfaithfulness that everybody's going to come to know what God is about, that, uh, that he is a God, a great God, capable of great things, a God who's just, and it'll, it'll be an eye-opener for, for everybody. But unless you have an objection to it, we have to come back to our discussion of kings. And this brings us down to verses 13 and following. And I would say this uh, section considers the question, what makes a good king? What makes a great king? Well, uh, we could see what uh, Jehoiakim was about and then see what the Lord had to say about that. Surely you would think uh, wealth, great wealth, and, if, and, the, and the means to kind of show it off to the world. Um, you definitely want to have a, a very impressive palace paneled with cedar, painted red. You'd want to have that if you're going to be a great king. Well, that's what Jehoiakim had. What about it? Well, God says in verse 13, Woe to him who builds his house without what? Righteousness. And his upper rooms, great rooms, without justice. And you'll see he's unfair and all sorts of other things. Uh, Jesus, in Luke chapter 16, verse 15, will say, uh, The things that are highly esteemed among men are detestable in the sight of God. And he was talking about riches in that context. Very same um, root problem that we're dealing with here. A love of wealth instead of a love of what? Righteousness and justice and the things that God delights in. What, so what makes a great king? Look at verse 15. Do you become a king, some great uh, leader, because you're competing in cedar? You've gotten all the cedar that you can wrap up. And that, you think that makes you a great king? I'll tell you about a great king, he says. And it's Josiah. And he says that in the middle of verse 15, Did not your father... Eat and drink, and I assume this is talking about his literal father, Josiah. Possible that it's talking figuratively of his uh, father a little bit farther back, David. But in either case, what did they do? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? That, that, that was what made him great. It was well with him at that time. He pled the cause of the afflicted and needy. Then it was well. And listen very carefully, because we've said this before, 
just a few moments ago. Is this not what it means to know me? What is, what is knowing God? Isn't it knowing what he's about and what he wants, that he wants this righteousness and this justice, that he has pled the cause of the afflicted and the needy? Reminds you of James chapter 1. What does God really want in religion? Well, he said pure and undefiled religion is what? To, to take care of who? Like the afflicted and the needy that we're reading about here? I think so. And uh, to take care of the widows and the orphans in their distress and to what? Keep oneself unstained, unspotted by the world. I think we're seeing that same thing here. Can we get Brian? I think this is what makes a king great, but Brian may have something else to say. Uh, it, just, it just brought to mind what tore the kingdom apart in the very beginning. When you think about the wealth that was there with Solomon, and then you go to Rehoboam, and it was that greedy nature, that covetous nature that could not be satisfied with abundant wealth, but had to have more. And when the people come to him asking to have those burdens lifted, he says, no, I'm going to double them. Mm -hmm. And you just think about what tore the kingdom apart in the very beginning is also there present at the very end. Yeah. Not much has changed. Well, it's no wonder when we're reading this. Um, well, let's, let's finish with uh, Jehoiakim in verse 17. So he obviously does not know God. What is he all about? Verse 17, your eyes and your heart are intent only on your own dishonest gain and the shedding of innocent blood and practicing oppression and extortion. That's not a way for a kingdom to be great. It's not a way for a king to be great. And so there's no wonder in verse 30 that his throne is going to be taken away. And so we're going to read verse 30. And... Uh, a very significant passage, and I'm going to have a, uh, a question for you here in a minute. You can tell us perhaps why, uh, one reason why this is significant. Thus says the Lord, write this man down childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. And so, according to Jeremiah's prophecy here, and in fact, and in reality, his son Jehoiakim became king, but then was effectively immediately carried off into captivity. If I'm right, he was only king for three months. That's not much of a king, and he's certainly not prospering. He's certainly not sitting down in peace on his throne and reigning in Israel. Now, uh, verse 30, uh, it should probably be pointed out, is doctrinally significant. And maybe one of you can tell us uh, why that is. <clears throat> Yeah, so what is that all about? Give him a mic. It's not going to come back and sit on a literal throne in literal Jerusalem any longer. Mm -hmm. That's what this passage says. Mm -hmm. No descendant of David's going to do that. Right. So I think what John is saying is that there, there are people who are looking for a kingdom that looked like this kingdom. It was just going to continue on like this kingdom or kind of be rebooted. And it was going to be the descendant, the, the Jesus. There are those who, you've seen the bumper stickers, I'm quite sure, support Israel. And I, I mean, I can appreciate that they have uh, interest in God's kingdom. But I think they're, well, I, I, they're, they're misguided here, right? 
There are those who are looking for a future earthly kingdom uh, with Jesus coming to Jerusalem, physical Jerusalem, not a literal, a figurative Zion, but a literal Jerusalem sitting on a throne like David did. And they've missed, to, to get to that conclusion, I think they've missed many statements in Scripture. This is one of them. Um, and I, I don't think you'll find any uh, call to believe that way. Here, the line of kings is ending. There's no more of this sitting on a throne in Jerusalem uh, from this man uh, and his kingly line. Um, they've missed the, J, Jesus' own statements where he would say, my kingdom is not of this world. That's not what this is about. How, how, do, you, how do you turn a blind eye to that? His throne is forever. Maybe that can be taken one way or another. The, he, he has ascended to the right hand of God and he is king now. Um, and that's Acts 2, Hebrews 1, Psalm 110, Psalm 2. Um, I'll leave that to you to make notes, read again, uh, refresh yourself if you need to. Um, but otherwise, we push on. One final note from uh, this chapter in verse 25, what we're beginning to see. Were you, do you have your hand, John? Oh, okay. Well, well, we'll take a stab at it, and then we'll, uh, we'll let you uh, uh, say what I missed. Uh, God's, what's happening in verse 25 is that God's judgment is beginning to take shape. Whereas before, he had kind of been relying on figurative language to describe this judgment. I'm pouring out things. I'm visiting you with wrath. I'm smashing jars. Now he just says plainly and uh, openly, um, that, and in, you know, beginning to give some detail, Jehoiakim and the people he leads are going to be given up into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. He names him <laughs> the king of uh, Babylon, which, by the way, if I'm given to understand correctly, he's not even fully come to power yet, if at all. Um, and and he's, he just, he's just pointing this out and said, that, that's what you can expect. And so he's getting very pointed. It's getting, I think, I, I just think that indicates that we're coming to the time is at hand. So what else? Uh, God promised David that he would, the Messiah would come uh, be a descendant of David, right? Now, this in t verse 24, that's Kaniah. Mm -hmm. He's called Jeconiah in some places and Jehoiachin in some places. So he would be the grandson of Josiah. Mm -hmm. And he wouldn't die. He, he would be taken into Babylonian captivity and released. I think it's 37 years or something like that. <clears throat> And then he would have sons and grandsons, and Zerubbabel, the one that led the return, that's a descendant through Kaniah here. So it was through those, that process, God kept his promise to David, even though they never sat on the throne in Jerusalem again, but he kept the promise to David through Kaniah here. Yeah, these wicked people um, couldn't undo what God intended to do, um, and, and he has... All sorts of ways of working that out if he needs to. Um, with, with their, um, let's just say with their cooperation or without it, right? Now, we come into chapter, what we call chapter 23, but we haven't left the topic. Um, these kings did not reign according to justice and righteousness. But what we're going to see here is that God will, one day, God will install his king the one that is truly after his own heart, even more so than David was. Um, but before we get to that, 
Um, what you find here is that, well, no, no, not before you get to that. We're coming straight into it. Um, the promise of God is this in verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I shall raise up for David a righteous branch. So we're using the same language as Isaiah. A righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely, and he will do justice and righteousness in the land. What will that mean for the nation? Verse 6, in his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. This recalls statements of the New Testament. Jesus is our righteousness. Romans 3 will say this. But now, apart from the law, we're in a new covenant now, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. We hear about it here, but we don't see it until later. It doesn't come until later. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. But by his doing, you are all in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom from God and righteousness. Jesus became to us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And so the only way uh, to be righteous is to be in him. And that's part of what's being called, why we're being told his name is the Lord our righteousness, by being in him and totally submitting to the king. All right, submitting to the king, or to the father and the king, we'll come back to that. You may have comments on that, but if not, we're coming down to verse 9. What we've seen in the last little few moments here together is that among the civil leaders, they haven't led the people in right ways, right? What about the religious leaders? Are they doing any better? Well, okay, so you're already shaking your heads. Um, the prophets who should be speaking for God, what about them? The priests who are, who's, who are supposed to in, instruct the people in God's ways, what about them? Well, no, and in fact, what you see is they are polluted and they've, brought, they've caused the whole land to be polluted. Oh boy, where are we here? Uh, yeah, so all of that we just saw and you didn't get a chance to see that, so I'm very sorry about that. And what we're seeing now is that the prophets and priests are polluted. Um, in verse uh, 11, both the prophet and the priest are polluted. Even in my house, I have found their wickedness, declares the Lord. What you've seen for among even the religious leaders, the ones that should have known God's will, should have known God, should have instructed them in God's ways, well, this is not their ways whatsoever. Uh, all their prophecies are going to be in the name of Baal, and they're going to lead Israel astray, says verse 13. They're walking in falsehood. It's whatever they've invented in their own minds. And that's really what we've seen all along. Um, they're they're going to be fed wormwood and drink poisonous water out of that well that they had dug and that they thought would be better than the fountain of living water. Uh, verse 14 says that they've strengthened the hands of evildoers. How do you, here's a question for you. How do you strengthen the hands of evildoers? 
you, uh, your gym partner or something with them? No, that's not it. What is it? Don't condemn them that they're evil. Mm-hmm. In fact, they were condoning them. Yeah, so not condemning, but condoning. If I, see? Should have been on the PowerPoint. Alliteration there for us to help us remember. Not condemning, but condoning. You can have the class next week. <clears throat> um. Pollution has gone forth from them into the whole land. Because of their ways, the whole land has become polluted. Some very pointed statements in verse 16 that reminds me of Jesus' statements. Do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. Jesus would say similarly, you worship me in vain, in vain And teaching as their doctrines the commandments of men. Well, here, they're leading you into futility. And what are they speaking? They're speaking a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. Some similarity in those statements there. They despise the Lord. And so, yeah, they're saying peace to people who can't have peace when God says um, a sword. And when God says, um, your ways are not right. And so, what God was looking for was people to instruct his people, but all they did was drive them away. Verse 21 and 22, I did not send these prophets, but they ran. I did not speak to them, but they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have announced my words to the people and would have turned them back from their evil ways and from their evil deeds. But instead, they're doing all kinds of of falsehood. And that's really the, the summary and the gist of chapter 23. All right. Comments? All right, we need to go to chapter 26. Now you'll say that's not, chap- that's not the chapter after 23. <laughs> We're not taking this strictly chronologically, but it would probably be helpful to see the progression. We've already started to see the progression of Jeremiah's message in growing from figurative language of destruction to very specific prophecy. And some of these things are maybe more easily seen if we try to take this generally in a chronological way. So that'll mean some uh, going this way and that just a little bit as we turn through it in our Bibles. You might have some thoughts on why these are out of order. and Why is it not chronologically arranged? Maybe that can become clear to us later. Chapter 26, Jeremiah's, watch this. Jeremiah is sent back to the temple for a second address to the people. Um, and to all the people. Perhaps, verse 3, perhaps this time they're going to listen and repent. Perhaps they're going to be like others who have listened and repented. Thus says the Lord, verse 2, stand in the court of the the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah who've come here to worship in the Lord's house, all the words. Speak to all of the people, all the words. Do not omit a word, he will say. Everything you, everything I will give you to say, you shall speak, chapters 1 and, and etc. All right, verse 4, here's the word. And you will say to them, thus says the Lord, if you will not listen to me, to walk in my law, which I have set before you, to listen to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I have been sending to you again and again, but you've not listened, well, then I make this house like Shiloh in this city, I will make a curse to all the nations of the earth. I'm going to destroy. But he's did you hear the, the beginning of that in verse 3? It's almost as though God is still hopeful. That's amazing. 
perhaps they will listen and everyone will turn from his evil way. Perhaps they'll be like Nineveh. Perhaps they'll be like Nineveh. When Jonah announced calamity because of their sin, they heard, they listened. Um, perhaps Israel will also likewise listen. They believed the word. They believed in God. Uh, it plainly says in Jonah 3, the king commanded, no one's going to eat or drink anything. It's, a, it's time for, we're all going to fast. And these are the words of those people. It's it just utterly amazing. These foreign people, what do they know about God and his ways? And what do they know about, we're going to be destroyed. Let's, let's try to repent. What do they know? Well, they knew more than God's own people. So listen to, this is in case you're turning, it's Jonah about 3, verses about 9 and 10. And let, uh, do not uh, eat or drink anything. Let men call on God earnestly. And what's all that about? And let them turn uh, from uh, their wicked ways and from the violence which is in their hands. Who knows? Who knows? God may turn and relent. That's chapter 18, Jeremiah. God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so we, we will not perish. And when God saw their deeds, that they had done this, that they had turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared that he would bring on them. And he didn't do it. And he was glad. And this is what he was looking for among his own people. What would there be? Nineveh is the pattern for God, people of all ages who want to avoid uh, the judgment of God. Well, what about Judah? What will their response be? So verse 8, when Jeremiah finished all these words that the Lord commanded him to speak to all the people, to the priests and the prophets, and all the people seized him saying, you must die. So they're going to kill the messenger. Like in Matthew 21, the wicked vine growers, the landowner sends his messengers. What do they do? They, they beat the one. They, they abuse all of them. They, I think they stone, well, they kill one and then they stone the next one. Uh, these are like those. They're going to be the same way. They're angry that he spoke against the king and against this great city, verse 11. A death sentence for this man, for he's a prophesied against this city. You don't speak against Jerusalem. Uh, not, not if they have anything to do with it. And so they're angry. The remarkable thing is that on this occasion... Some cooler heads and some wisdom actually started to gain some traction, started to win out. They kind of like, I liken it to what Gamaliel said. It's like, we shouldn't be opposing this idea because if we speak against him, he's claiming to speak for God. We shouldn't be opposed to this. And at least some of them are beginning to think this way. But the priests and the prophets are still incensed against Jeremiah that evidently the elders and the people are, are, well, the elders are trying to influence the people, and they've realized it's a bad idea, <laughs> for some reason, for us to kill the prophet who's speaking to us and claiming to speak from God. And so I don't know, by the way, if this is from conviction, they say you ought not to kill a prophet of God, or if it's kind of like from superstition, it's like, well, we might get in, just kind of get in trouble, but... It is notably absent that there weren't these strong words of like admonition to repent, <laughs> like happened in Nineveh. It was like, well, let's not kill him. You know, he might be speaking for God. Do you remember the other, those others men, those others like Micah and the others that spoke for God? Hezekiah didn't um, 
didn't murder him, maybe we should, uh, maybe we should be careful about this. Um, if we, well, verse 19, Hezekiah feared the Lord and entreated the favor of the Lord. And we remember that the Lord changed his mind then about the misfortune he planned to, uh, to, to bring on them. They said, we're kind of actually hurting ourselves. We're bringing or we're committing a great evil against ourselves. But the, really the summation of all of this is the, what's happening behind the scenes. The king is still not kindly disposed to Jeremiah. The priests and the prophets certainly aren't kindly disposed. And I think God is using his uh, servant, his name here is Ahikam, to get him out of there, <laughs> rescue him. It, it made me think, I wonder if it would be right for us to rescue and hide and help and assist fug fugitives when they are wrongly being pursued and wrongly being, uh, you know, tormented. I, I, I really wonder about that and what this teaches. But uh, maybe you can have something to say. But that will probably need to be uh, later at some other time. We didn't get to see chapter 35, but that's what we'll see uh, next time we come together. I think we're uh, pretty well out of time for today. But you'll see some people who were honoring their father. All right, come back next week. Come back before then.